Welcome to the Makom Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman and a very impressive guest. Alan, how are you? Okay. Thank God, Mike. How are you? Chag Sameach, I should say. Yeah, Moadim Lusimcha. It's Cholomoed Sukkot. It's... Traditionally, a very happy time for Jews, but it's also a very complicated time. Sukkot re- represents the fragility of life, and so we are going to discuss today the conflict in Azerbaijan and Armenia, and how that, as is- Israelis and Israel watchers, what that means. And so, Alan, would you please introduce our guest? Well, Zmiri Eisen is, is returning guest for us, uh, our expert on the Middle East, to help us try to make sense out of all of this. Um, so we're very happy she was able to join us today on Sukkot um, in the middle of the in the middle of Cholmoed. So thank you for coming, Miri. And uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, Mike, you know, wanna... I mean, we're honored anytime you come. Yeah, you know, sort of vacation. Although let's let's not give uh, Miri too big a break. It's lockdown vacation. So <laughs> what were you doing anyway, honestly? <laughs> It's called the Zoom yeah. world. Yeah. Lectures, yeah. more lectures, but I guess a few podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. So when this story popped up, I don't know that it's on everybody's radar about this conflict, which has been going on quite a long time. But Israel has, it's being fought to a certain extent with Israeli weapons. And, and I do, do you think as, as people who care about Israel, this story should be particularly relevant to us? So I think we need to take a step back, like with other types of conflicts, and kind of remember, we're talking about two countries we don't usually talk about, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Both of them were part of the Soviet Union. One of them, Armenia, is mainly Christian. The other one, Azerbaijan, is overwhelmingly Muslim. So in its own way, we're talking about something that is far away, but no, it's actually part of the Middle East, because both Azerbaijan and Armenia both border the Middle East. Armenia borders Turkey, Azerbaijan borders Iran. So here we are suddenly in that Middle East back door. And as I said, the one is mainly Christian and the other is mainly Muslim. They were both part of the Soviet Union. So we have our Russian connection. Does that contact to Israel? Absolutely. Azerbaijan is fighting with a lot of Israeli weapons that we've sold them. Armenia is, Which is a country the Muslim that side. we have strong relations. It's the Muslim yeah. side that we have sold them, and not just Muslim, it's Shiite Muslim. And yes, I just made it even more complicated. <laughs> um, but we always like to look at countries as being one. Armenia is an ancient culture, an ancient religious culture. It's its own language. There's the Armenian quarter in the old city. Some people have heard of the Armenian genocide that happened by the Turks in World War I. So here we come in to this conflict of 2020, which didn't start in 2020. It's just reigniting in 2020. Wow. Beyond skirmishes into Should a full-blown war. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, skirmishes, uh, skirmishes do tend to become very often a full-scale war if nobody stops them. And in this case, what's happening is the borders I just talked about. Armenia borders Turkey. Azerbaijan borders Iran. But in a very odd way, Armenia and Turkey are enemies. And Azerbaijan and Iran are enemies. 
the Turks are helping the Azeris, okay? Yeah. And the Russians are helping the Armenians. And that means that there's a potential here for what are skirmishes right now to become a much broader conflict with the involvement of all of those countries I just mentioned, which immediately brings it into the Middle Eastern sphere. So you, you say about the conflict. So you mentioned there's two, okay, we have uh, uh, religious distinctions, Christian, Armenian, and Muslim, Azerbaijan. Um, we have land, like what's the essence of the conflict? Like why are they fighting? I mean, is it... Right, so here we get into such a Middle Eastern type conflict happening in the Caucasian mountains. In the countries that were established after the Soviet Union dissolved, meaning it's only from the early 1990s, it's not an... It, these are new countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, as independent countries. Inside the country of Azerbaijan, is a relatively large area which has an Armenian, Christian, Armenian-speaking population that from the beginning, 1990s, when those borders were defined, Armenia said that this area, which has that oh-so-complicated name that yeah, everybody keeps words getting words mixed up on, Nagorno-Karabakh, that's the name of the area. Yeah. So in that area of Nagorno-Karabakh, you have in what is mainly a Muslim country, Azerbaijan, an area that is overwhelmingly Armenian Christian Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And for the last 30 years, it has been an area that has had on again, off again, a little bit of autonomy. They feel that they are ethnically part of Armenia, Azerbaijan, it's been part of Azerbaijan. And so here you get into that mix-up. They want to be part of Armenia. The area does not physically border Armenia. It's, it doesn't have a land border with Armenia. There isn't continuity of land, which means that for Armenians to get there, they have to fly there. They have to go over Azeri land. So it's like a, an island in Azerbaijan uh, of Armenians. It's yeah. a relatively large island, but again, yeah. in a mountainous area yeah. in Azerbaijan. And the conflict itself goes on and off, meaning over the last 30 years, because all of these years they've had this problem, um, the skirmishes will start because the people in this area, in Nagorno-Karabakh, they want to be part of Armenia, and they have a kind of autonomy. And it kind of depends on who the leader of Azerbaijan is on what happens inside this area. When you get an Azeri leader, Azerbaijan Azeri, an Azeri leader, who is Muslim and happens to be Shiite, speaks Azeri, it's its own language, and sees this area as being part of Azerbaijan, then suddenly nationalism becomes more intense. Mm -hmm. And when you have leaders who don't care as much, then it is less intense. Right now, you have a relatively nationalist Azeri, Azeri leader who wants to impose Azerbaijan into this autonomous area. And this specific form of the conflict exists post-Soviet Union, but the, the, the ethnic clashes and difficulties precede the Soviet Union also, no? I mean, this isn't just a new... It's a new version of an old... It's Absolutely. Yeah. And the problem, I mean, when we talk about the Caucasian mountains, yeah. if I would take a list, I'd have to pull it up on my screen and start to think about that. Um, guys, go and look up right now just Azerbaijan and see the amount of ethnic 
communities, different languages that are just in Azerbaijan. But that's true of all of the former Soviet republics. They were made up out of lots of different cultures, languages, religions. So Azerbaijan has really like 95% Muslim, okay? Most of it's Shiite, a little bit of it's Sunni. I remind you that Turkey is Sunni, Iran is Shiite. So again, you get that little bit that goes in there. But the 5% or so that are not Muslim are made up both of the Armenian Christians, but of other, of Russians, of Tataris. There are all sorts of different religions and ethnicities in the Caucasian mountains, and these are just part of them. So so now, I, I would think if I was an Israel policymaker, I would want to stay out of this toxic mess because you have, you have essentially, you know, Turkey is supporting one side, which also they're sort of working with the Iranians are also kind of supporting because, which which is a strange bedfellows, right? Aren't they not? And then you have Russia on the other side. Wouldn't Israel be wise? So yeah, let's, go ahead. let's Unpack make it that. even further. Yeah. Absolutely. So when, when we've talked in the past and I've tried to discuss these challenges of the Middle East, um, if we talk about Syria and the immense amount of different fighters that came in from all over the Muslim world, both Sunni and Shiite, to fight in Syria. And to a certain degree, that was then exported from the Syrian area into Libya. Mm-hmm meaning people who had been fighting in Syria were exported to fight in Libya, mainly Sunnis on the different sides. And that is now happening in Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. The Turks are bringing in, the Turks, are Sunni Turks who speak Turkish, mm-hmm. are bringing in Sunni jihadi Syrian fighters who are Sunni, to fight with the Shiite Azeris against the Armenian Christians. And if I haven't wow. lost you until now, no, I've lost you. Oh, that's I'm a beautiful at- thing. What a lovely story about <laughs> Sunni and Shia, Turks and Arabs okay, so, all getting along. Yes. Islamic Kumbaya. end of days. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And where does that bring in the Israelis? Yeah. So here it's complicated, like always. We have diplomatic ties both with Armenia and with Azerbaijan. We have with both of them. With Azerbaijan, when Israel sells weapons to countries worldwide, we sell weapons through what is essentially a governmental structure. When you buy weapons that used to be that were made for the IDF, that are old IDF weapons, you can't just sell them anywhere, okay? The Israelis will look at it and say, I'm not going to sell our weapons just to any old country. And we have strong... Um, defense ties with Azerbaijan. We do not have defense ties with Armenia, but we do have what we feel is, in a sense, a common background. They are a very ancient culture. They have their own language. They are a Christian culture. The Armenian, um, as I said, the Armenian quarter in the old city of Jerusalem. They've been an Armenians oppressed have been ethnic minority. They've been an oppressed minority. They worked under different um, Muslim countries. So they're similar a bit to, to Jewish minorities worldwide. So here we have these two countries now. They're not openly, overtly fighting each other yet. It's what we call skirmishes. But for those who follow military sites, and I follow some of the military sites, we're already looking at a weapon display. 
meaning the Azeris are using the advanced type of weapons that Israel has supplied to them to fight against Armenians in this specific region in Azerbaijan. And that means that Israel's name is out there right now. It means that in Armenia, people are going to be standing up and saying, look, Israeli weapons are being used against Armenians. Now, if you think that I'm going too far, Los Angeles has had demonstrations over the last week of Armenians, mm -hmm. Armenian-Americans, who are demonstrating on the streets of L.A. against Azerbaijan and against the use of Israeli weapons mm -hmm. there because there are some of the weapons that are being used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in particular, there's some, and some of these are really cutting edge, like these so-called suicide drones that, that so are being... The I mean, these are, that Israel, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, the drones, Israel is at the forefront in the world of drone use, what we call UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles. That's the term UAV. They're known in the United States usually as drones. We call them UAVs. They're quite large, but they're unmanned. And there are all sorts of different types, and we've been at the forefront, we Israel, of developing them for our own uses. We're really way ahead of the rest of the world. And we don't, we export what is considered to be advanced but not as advanced as the ones that we keep at mm -hmm. home and the ones that they've been using they show that these drones from the air these uavs can view the target and then they can launch missiles from the drone from the uav at the target and the missile itself is filming the target until it hits it so you're getting a full it's like very social media video of the target and then the target being hit and we're in a social media world so at the same time whoever's on the ground is filming and we're getting oh the azerbaijanis are posting very, this stuff on the internet as if it's supposed to like they're posting yeah. it on the internet and the armenians are posting it from the ground huh. So you're actually getting quite devastating photos of an ongoing skirmish where the main um, advanced weapons being used are Israeli. I mean, I, to me, it feels a little bit like this sort of Guernica moment of like aerial bombing being tried out before we see its full flourishing in World War II. You had it in the Spanish Civil War. People are trying out these new weapon systems. And then eventually, I'm always worried about, like we think of drones as this like protected western cutting edge thing that nobody can use but it's just a question of time before that becomes so drones are something that the entire western world i would say after israel very much went and developed i mean we we were at the beginning of it and everybody has developed their own mm -hmm. i mean the u.s have their own the british have their own the french have their own the russians have their own the turks have their own we sold turkey drones and then we stopped selling Turkey drones when we were in a stage where some of that weaponry was of the type that we said, you know what, we're not really sure we want Turkey to have it. And now Azerbaijan is using it in Azerbaijan against this autonomous region. And, and it's clear cut throughout everything. Nobody's trying to hide the mm -hmm. fact that a lot of these advanced weapons are Israeli. So does it give away secrets that could hurt us afterwards? I don't think so. I think that the kind of drones that we've sold 
are the kind that are already out there, already known. Turkey uses them up um, an aversion because they did some reverse engineering. Um, everybody uses drones nowadays, as we do. I mean, and we're not worried about... Um, we not, keep the very heavy-duty important ones to ourselves. What about the Iranians? The Iranians also are allied with the us. The Iranians... Sure. Well, hey, let's not go too far. Hezbollah has drones, yeah. okay? I mean, these are things that are out and about. They're little ones. They're big ones. They're ones that have weaponry on them. They're ones that only have cameras on them. They're all sorts of different types. The whole thing is that it's a drone. It does not have people. It's unmanned. It's controlled from the ground so that you, in its own way, you're saving, you're protecting manpower. You're effective. There's different types of effectiveness when you are doing it unmanned, when you're not there by yourself. Israel still does many of the preemptive type of attacks that we don't always take responsibility for, but all of the other worldwide will say that sometimes we do it with manned planes, planes that have pilots on them, and sometimes we do it with unmanned, with the drones. There are advantages and disadvantages to each. And as such, because everybody has drones, it's not like it's a secret. But, um, also, Israel has a fairly robust uh, military industry um, export to not yes, the uh, not always the uh, most... Um, uh, Our customers yeah, aren't always yeah. uh, paragons of virtue. Yeah, exactly. It's a good way of saying it. And so... This, um, sadly, I'm going to share right now, guys, with all of our listeners, that the largest industry in the world, which generates the most money in the world, is the arms industry, period and by far. Hmm. And it is in its own way an instigator because you develop things for military use which is violence and war, but you develop them for military use, usually it also is where you invent all sorts of ideas that are wonderful in civilian use. And that's been a jump start in the last, certainly even, I mean, for the last 150 mm -hmm. years, where you've invented something for the military and then we all get to enjoy it, including the internet that we're using right now, amongst others. Mm -hmm. But I say that because Israel is part of that, meaning it is a huge export for us, um, both in the high-tech of drones, also in the low-tech of old tanks, mm -hmm. old artillery pieces. If you can sell them and make some money, you sell them and make some money. And, and yes, somebody is, and none of them, as you said, are paragons of democracy. Countries that buy old weapons usually are not ones that you're going to be really proud of. They are all countries that we have diplomatic ties with. We don't sell to our enemies. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly you can understand why so many citizens consider that a problematic thing for a, a state which, for many, is meant to live up to particular ideals, even providing weapons to countries that are in conflicts that don't directly affect us, supporting so, anti-democratic governments is morally problematic. I think that when we talk about diplomacy, and in a moment I'll talk about war, you could say the same thing in diplomacy. Do you want to have diplomatic ties with countries that are absolute dictatorships? And I hate to tell you guys, but everybody yeah. does it, even New Zealand and Canada, okay? Meaning if I want to give the paragons of countries that, that they haven't stopped their diplomatic ties with a country like Saudi Arabia that chops off people's hands because they stole something, and not just Iran, as I say, you know, if you don't disconnect ties with Saudi Arabia, you can't be on the higher moral ground. When it comes to weaponry, yeah. it goes through an additional sieve, an additional... 
um, committee, which is going to look and say, could those weapons ever be used against us? They don't necessarily look and say, would those um, weapons be used in a non, you know, and, when it comes to and civilian yeah, issues? And you know, despite your von Clausewitz um, perspective that, in war, yeah, that war is just diplomacy at the extreme, but it, but it, it's a pretty big line is crossed when it, civilians are being hurt or innocent people are being hurt. So let's be very clear. We're in 2020. There is no such thing as a war. That I don't want to do a double negative. All wars involve civilians. Mm-hmm. We're in 2020. Yeah. Um, and it's not a question of World War II. There are not wars that are just between militaries. I would go so far as to say, perhaps I would look at 1973, the Yom Kippur War, as overwhelmingly being military versus military, and the civilians right. were affected, mm-hmm. but on the side. Huge tank battles, but huge tank battles. The last, right, right. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of tank battles. That's it. We're in, that's not the kind of wars anymore. Wars are fought um, in social media, and I mean in the fact that the fact that the Azeris are showing their weapons mm-hmm. and showing their effectiveness and showing them as Israeli weapons, because if it's an Israeli weapon, that must make it better, mm-hmm. is part of the war of perception mm-hmm. that goes hand in hand together with the physical, harsh, violent death aspect that goes with um, wars at any time. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, a, really, <laughs> that's a really complicated picture. Uh, and, and, and going beyond that complication is the fact that Israel is now allying with the Turkish-Iranian-supported side as opposed to the Russian-supported side, which, how does that work so out diplomatically? Here I, I don't, okay, I don't think of us as aligning with them because we do do a separation between, you know, when we sell our weapons, and, and so this isn't that we're supporting the Azeris against the Armenians. We've sold weapons to these Azeris, and the Azeris are using. But we're not doing like a. And it's I not like a weapon airlift with weapons, like you say, like the United States helped exactly. us in the Young People War or something. It's- Very good example. I like that. That's a strong example. Mm-hmm. Um, we sell weapons to countries in Africa that we have diplomatic ties with in wars that we've never heard of. The reason we're hearing about this war, because this war could touch us in a very negative way, happens to be exactly because of the things that we're saying here. Armenia is supported by Russia. Um, Azerbaijan is supported by Turkey and Iran. Turkey, I mean, I don't want to say Turkey. I want to remind all of our listeners, we have diplomatic ties with Turkey. Um, And that's a real challenge nowadays. Mm -hmm. But we are certainly at war with Iran, a very overt one. It's happening mainly on Syrian territory, perhaps a bit on Lebanese territory, but there is a war. And when wars like that suddenly expand, that's when it becomes very challenging for our diplomacy and our international relations. Wow. And, this is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it is, and it's, uh, it's, also, it's also kind of scary. How much does this play into, I don't know if it's neo-Ottomanism, but this, you know, this you have the Iranians struggling, the, the different axes of power. You have the Iranians struggling with the Shia axis to get control. You have the Turks struggling to create this, you know, Muslim Brotherhood, this Sunni, more fundamentalist. And then you have the, like, the more moderate powers. How does this, if that's the big conflict in the Middle East, how does this play into that bigger story? So in a funny way, Azerbaijan, which is overwhelmingly a Muslim country, was is considered to be 
a real secular Muslim country, meaning they managed to establish a country, a constitution, with separation of religion and state hmm. in a way that Turkey is having lots of challenges with over the they, last they 15 years. They were successful years. That's at the it, whole, but they've, they've, it's degraded. Right. They were they were until yeah. now and they're posing this conflict as not being religious but as being national, mm-hmm. meaning this is an autonomous area inside Azerbaijan and we want it to be a full part of Azerbaijan. It's not about Muslims against Christians, let alone Shiites and Sunnis against Armenian Orthodox, which is one's type of Christian. No, it's being posed as the Azeris fulfilling their right to enact full control over all of their country, including an autonomous part. Now here, I'll give you another challenge. Mm-hmm. Hmm, doesn't that sound kind of familiar? Isn't a sovereign country allowed to stop these terror acts of semi-autonomy inside mm-hmm. our area? They're not allowed to do that. They're not a, a sovereign country. So all of these little t- touching points suddenly are playing out in a very so, so can I ask a clarifying point? You may have said before, but I missed it. So when you say it's an autonomous region, the the, the people living there, they are citizens of of which country? They're citizens of Azerbaijan, uh-huh. but they have um, autonomy. On because just like in Israel in that sense, you have the different type of religious courts and you have different aspects. They have an autonomy that means that they're allowed to study in their schools in Armenian, have the different aspects which go with autonomous life. They're not allowed to do their own international relations or have a war in that sense. They're not supposed to have their own weaponry. And that's what the Azeris are saying is that they've built weapons and they're not allowed that Armenia transferred weapons to there and they're not allowed to have their own weaponry they're part they, of Azerbaijan. they have representatives in the Azerbaijan government no. not in the government uh, but they do have in, in parliament, parliament. Uh, in parliament mm-hmm. right and the and the the actual combatants is are, are their militias against the Azerbaijani military so when this started, because it's already been over two, almost three weeks, it slowly mm-hmm. started to go more and more. We're all in the middle of COVID. We're not necessarily noticing right. how these skirmishes are growing out. Um, it started out when the Azeris said that Armenia was transferring weapons into this autonomous area and that that's not allowed. And so that the Azeris were putting themselves on a national sovereign ground and saying, we are going to stop this in this autonomous area. The Armenians are going to say that the Azeris were um, uh, prohibiting issues of the autonomous area that were allowed there and that they're totally against this autonomous area. In any case, this area should be part of Armenia and not part of Azerbaijan in any case. So the skirmishes, yeah, sorry. So who are the actual yeah, fighters? Yeah. The fighters are local Armenians who have lived in this area, in this area, and the Azeri military who is fighting against them. 
So it's a sovereign military of Azerbaijan. It's not, you know, it's like it's the sovereign. It's the ones who legally and rightfully and by sovereign right are the ones who are allowed to carry weapons inside Azerbaijan. And again, it comes up into issues which are very nasty for mm -hmm. us because it's issues that we don't necessarily want to talk about either. You know, the challenges of what's there. So are policemen allowed to carry weapons or not? Is it an autonomous region or not? But this, of course, is not the same. It's in Azerbaijan. It's not the same. And here Armenia went and sent weapons. And the Azeris are saying that the Armenians sent the weapons and that the Armenian fighters in this area of Azerbaijan, in Nagorno-Karabakh, are um, Azeri Armenians, okay, and also foreign fighters. Um, how did the Syrians come into there? Because I said before that Turkey, who supports Azerbaijan, has sent his has sent in Syrian mm -hmm. Sunni fighters. I mean, talk about complicated. Um, the Azeris don't want to have any casualties. Mm -hmm. This is not the type of conflict where they want to go home and say afterwards, we were fighting for something and these people died because of that. Um, and they're not willing to sacrifice in that sense people. So they're using drones, which immediately means that they won't have casualties. And the um, only so that the Turks have sent in fighters who are willing to fight on the ground because the Armenians in this area have attacked some of the Azeri towns that surround it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, by the way, just a, a side. Uh, sorry, I have to apologize if you guys are picking up some side noise. I've got grandchildren, grandchildren bopping around. So, um, and, and, and some of it's <laughs> spilling over actually into Iran, isn't it? Hasn't, haven't there been accusations of... Okay, so... It's not just the accusations. When we talk about the borders of the Middle East, go and look at a map now. You're listening to a podcast. Open up a map. When you look at the map, the map has really nice, straight, long borders. Mm -hmm. But the ethnicities throughout the Middle East, and as I said, this is a northern extension of the Muslim Central Asian Middle East, the Caucasian Mountains, um, There are there's a large Azeri community in Iran. And this area, this autonomous area in Azerbaijan is on the very near the Iranian border. It almost borders Iran. So in exchanges of fire, when you're doing artillery, when you're firing different things, some of these exchanges of fire have already fallen physically into Iran's territory. And they're saying, we're not going to take that. We're going to go bomb and stop and, mm -hmm. um, and stop this fighting inside this area. And, and so you, but you don't think there's major repercussions in the three-way conflict between the Iranian side, the Turkish side, and the Saudi, in those three axes of power in the Middle East, you don't think this is a, has proxy implications? Saudi Arabia, okay, Saudi Arabia is not engaged inside here, not Saudi and not the Gulf mm -hmm. countries. As I said, Azerbaijan is a Muslim mm -hmm. country, has always been a relatively secular one. In the 1990s, when it first got independence, the Sauds, just like they've done in other places, did try to send money, build mosques, send in preachers. So it became slightly more religious than it had been. But there isn't that. It, it didn't turn into that type of um, country that is looking at an Islamic side of it. It wasn't. I don't know what's going to happen right now. Because as I said, this conflict came out of a nationalistic approach. But the forces that are willing to fight in it are ones that are coming out of a religious mm -hmm. approach. And again, that complicates matters. The Turks right now have their finger in the pie in Syria, in Kurdish Iraq, in 
the Azeri area of, the, the, as I said, in the Azeri area and in Libya. Most of us aren't aware of the fact that they're also building a really big port in Eritrea, which used to be in Ethiopia and it's Sunni Muslim. They're building a different port in Djibouti. So Sunni Turkey is putting out its little Sunni fingers, building on the one hand ports, fighting inside wars in Libya, Syria, Azerbaijan. So what is Turkey doing? Iran, in the Shiite, as we said, Turkey Sunni. Iran is fighting in Iraq, fighting in Syria, fighting in Lebanon. Now looking at the Azerbaijani border, trying to move out into all sorts of different areas. So yes, it, it, it's going to impact mm -hmm. us. The question is how. I want to give you one example of a really tough policy question mm -hmm. that I'd like us to think about. So guys, who are you for? Mm -hmm. Armenia or Azerbaijan? What happens if Israel has to choose a mm -hmm. side? And I say that because in Israeli politics, because of our Israeli-Turkish relations, we recognized the Armenian genocide officially just a few years mm -hmm. ago. Happened just in the last few years. We never recognized it before, and we officially recognized it. And it was a bit because we were trying to annoy Turkey, mm -hmm. or because we were annoyed by mm -hmm. Turkey. But that suddenly means that, right, we're on the Armenian side. But Azerbaijan is a secular Muslim country, and it's very important for Israel to have ties with secular Muslim countries. We just signed a historic peace treaty with Muslim Arabic countries. We want to have that more and more often. There are other central um, um, Asian republics that are Muslim, and we like having those ties. They are, they are an alternative to the jihadi Muslims who are out there. We used to with Turkey also. <laughs> Turkey was one of those Muslim countries that was secularized. Turkey used and, yeah. to be a secular, and, and I want to say that. I look at Turkey and I say, so you build up ties with a secular Muslim country like Turkey mm -hmm. as an alternative like Turkey, and then Turkey becomes... Erdogan is part, has been voted in because his country wanted more um, religious culture beyond what it had before. It didn't want to be just a, um, a, a secular Muslim country. And so you go Azerbaijan, what if it goes down that road too? Maybe it's better to stick with Armenia, the Christian country, or not. I'm, I'm not giving you answers. Right. I want you to see the policy dilemmas because we don't think about that often enough. When we look at the end, we're going to look at the end policy result, and we never think of the fact that those are real challenging decisions yeah. to Also, you throw, you, Russia into the, you throw Russia yeah. into the pot, which is, okay. I mean, Russia's on the Armenian side, so uh, that's... Uh, absolutely, and you're yeah. absolutely right, but in Syria, Russia, Turkey, Iran are all more or less on the same right. side, except in northern Syria, where now Turkey is against Russia um, and Syria, but Turkey is with Iran. It's like, where do you get out of these things? How can some places they be together and some places not right. be together? And and that's exactly the challenges nowadays where they So then overlap. just looking back at that, I'd like to answer a little bit to address this question more. So how would you say Israel did with the Syria melting pot of different interests, right? Because, I mean, Israel had to take a pos ha had to take a position, some kind of position with the Syrian 
um, civil war that's been raging for years and had all those different things, right? Okay. Sure. Um, I think that Israel's policy when it comes to the Syrian conflict in the last decade of war in Syria has been consistent, clear, and from my point of view, very well done. Meaning, we stated very clearly that our big enemy is Iran and the Iranian intrusion into Syria. Um, Iran has a strategic relationship with Syria, um, more correctly with Bashar Assad in Syria. So Bashar Assad is an enemy, Iran is an enemy, Bashar Assad, Iran, and Hezbollah. And we have actively acted against those three for the last decade. We've done so sometimes overtly and sometimes covertly, but we've done it consistently. And that has been our stand. Have we been successful? You know, we always like to do the hypotheticals. We don't know what would have happened if we hadn't done it. What I can say is that it has managed, it certainly managed to contain some of the Iranian capabilities, um, um, some of the influence, and on the other hand, um, because everybody was attacking the Sunni jihadis, that opened up the way for the Shiite Iranians to come in. So for the Israeli policy, I think that we were consistent and we were effective, but that doesn't mean that other people didn't, or sorry, I need to say that again. Um, we were consistent, we were effective, and it helped to contain to a certain degree the Iranian influence opposite us inside Syria. But it isn't no. over. Right. It isn't something that you finish. Right. It's something that continues. But that, right, but that can guide us on a policy approach here too, right? Something that's very practical, something that's going to, right? In other words, Israel didn't, didn't really take... I mean, it took sides in the sense of only something that was going to very directly affect Israel's um, or perceived threat to Israel, right? So that's that's the way, that would be the way, right? I'll clarify myself. No, I'll clarify myself. (laughs) I'll clarify myself. Um, It's called the parts you get to cut out. Zoom life. That I don't mind. It's because I have to buy the The... It's all part of the big picture of our remote communications now. It's all complicated. You can't just talk to people. It is. Right. Um, When Israel made a clear-cut decision that what they were doing in Syria was not about the Syrians, we said we weren't on any side in the Syrian conflict, but we weren't going to allow Iran, Hezbollah, or Bashar Assad specifically to use the conflict against us. We barely even mentioned Bashar Assad, by the way. It was we wouldn't allow Iran or Hezbollah to use the Syrian conflict as a basis against us. We have said that consistently. We have been consistent in our response, and we have been effective meaning Hezbollah and Iran have found it very challenging to do any kind of base in the area from the Golan Heights towards Damascus. We've we've been active. That doesn't mean that we can use that in Azerbaijan because Iran is in there and Turkey is there in our relationship with Turkey. I do think that our effectiveness against the the, um, encroachment of Iran and Hezbollah, of our being successful in stopping to a certain degree Iran and Hezbollah, helped us in our diplomacy in the peace treaty that was signed this summer with the Gulf countries because that was part of it. Bahrain, UAE, they look at that. And that was one of the reasons that they're willing to be in a much closer relationship with us. 
Well, I think ironically, now that you've explained things so that I understand them better, I feel like I'm more confused. Like, I feel like now that the more I know, it's called talking to me, <laughs> being more confused. But, but, it, but it really, you know, it's real it, education. It's, yeah, that's education. I mean, that's the more you know, the more you realize how complex it is. And I, I don't envy the policymakers who have to wrestle with these things, but it doesn't sit well with me. You know what I mean? And I realize that's an emotional. It doesn't sit well with me that I, I feel like morally i feel bad for these ethnic uh, uh, armenians who who want to express their autonomy and and they're being bullied it just it's triggering simple emotions that aren't you know how you're supposed to think about geopolitics but it bothers me i understand where you're coming from mm -hmm. geopolitics can be understanding that emotion and because of that trying not to take a stand and and in its own way sometimes mm -hmm. in geopolitics when we go why aren't they making a decision why aren't they taking a stand it's because taking that stand would take a price that you don't want to mm -hmm. pay mm -hmm. when you're thinking right now of that higher moral ground you also do not want to be involved in a conflict which can have regional implications which can be really negative for you so you can't stand up strongly and say, I'm with those who deserve mm -hmm. it, but you also don't help the side that you're... Because at the end, you, you have to find a middle ground. I think that on that level, um, the government and under Prime Minister Netanyahu over the last decade, I would say that we have done very well in trying not to take a clear-cut stand mm -hmm. in the greater Middle East. And I'd like to give the following example. Turkey. Mm -hmm. I think that the most surprising element of 2020 is that Israel still has diplomatic ties with Turkey. I don't Turkey. understand that. And we do. <laughs> yeah. And we do. And that's that level of when you try to say it's a country, 85 million people, the 85 million people don't necessarily hate us, mm -hmm. okay? The 85 million people have had a long relationship with Israel over the years. It isn't just Erdogan. Erdogan says all sorts of different things, but you do manage to keep a level of commerce. I mean, at the end, it's not that the UAE, okay, the UAE is not a democracy. Let's not get this wrong. Bahrain is not a democracy. Both countries have human rights violations that you don't want to hear about. But did we talk about that when we just signed a peace treaty with them in the last month? Again, in geopolitics, you have to look at that. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I think that in the hard decisions that Israel has actually managed to maintain that relationship with Turkey, even though I, Miri, would like to be on the higher um, moral ground and say, are you kidding? Let's stop the ties with them. Yeah, I, and I, I hear all of that, and I, and I understand that that's the right way to think about these things. But to me, I, I do think there's, there's a difference when they're, you know, I, my, when Armenians in Los Angeles, you're, you're saying, are saying we don't want to be bombed with Israeli mm -hmm. weapons. And, may, and, you know, partially it's trigger, triggering my Marvel comics movie, you know, oh, Tony Stark's name was on the weapon, and that's a bad thing. Like, there, there's something to that, that... Uh, that it is, it is, it, so it's a, I get what you're saying, but it is also more complicated than even that. All right. Then I'm going to say it's a different discussion that mm -hmm. I think would be a wonderful one to have, which would be about the diplomacy 
um, and what I call military diplomacy, meaning mm -hmm. um, Israel has diplomatic ties with 166 countries in the world. Mm -hmm. We sell weapons. You're sitting down to over 70 countries. Go down yeah. that list of, of countries. We don't sell weapons to the good guys. Mm -hmm. You sell weapons to countries that want to buy weapons. And, I, that, and again, I'm going to only say that Canada sells weapons everywhere. Mm -hmm. that, that in that sense, you're making weapons and you sell weapons to countries you have diplomatic ties with. And it's a question that you're always going to have. It yeah. doesn't feel as good as you'd like to. Um, but but it is part of the world that we live in. So we're going to put yeah. that definitely on our list of uh, of episodes to have because I want to hear yeah, more about yeah. that military uh, diplomacy. Okay. Because um, I think yeah, it's, I think uh, it's really a, that'd be great. Important. I think it's an important thing for us to understand in uh, in the world. Obviously, it's not just an Israel issue. Happily, I'd wanna. I'm happy to do so. Um, I'll sit and prepare it a bit more because it's one where the data itself is. Fascinating right. and a little uncomfortable, but not to feel bad. Okay, don't worry. The United yeah. States is oh, the number add. one <laughs> yeah. world arms exporter in the world, yeah. and Russia is yeah. number two, and and we're and we're behind Britain and France. I mean, everybody exports. Yeah, arms. no, it's a way. It's a way of how understanding the world, how the world works, which I think we don't often think about. That's the thing, you know. We, and, we, but, but that's that, exactly yeah. it. It's Absolutely. it's one of these background things that don't get noticed. But in a way, I mean, this was Eisenhower's warning, famously in his uh, in his uh, not his resignation, whatever. His when he left office, he gave that speech: "Beware the military-industrial conflict." That at a certain point, you know, the tail wags the dog, and and this business, which is yes. drives. The so Wag the Dog of... is one of my favorite movies, okay? <laughs> um, I watch it periodically because it brings everything together. Mm -hmm. Wag the Dog, I mean, just in that idea of inventing a war, which is only on TV, and that you do that because of politics, okay? Right. And everybody goes, ah, couldn't happen. And I don't think that you invent necessarily the war nowadays, but if I look right now, at this Azeri-Armenian war, which is happening in an autonomous region in Azerbaijan, it is totally wag the dog. It's taking those photos and then using right. them and exploiting them for politics. And there's a real war going on. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. And, and, it yeah. is. Sukkot Shalom. This right. is Shalom. Gonna... <laughs> hey, hugs. No, well, thank you. And... Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. Thanks so much. And bye-bye.